So Matthew chapter 26 is where we're going to be this morning. My freshman year of college, I was at a, um, uh, my, my college had this get-together, this fellowship one evening, and uh, it, was, it was late at night, and I met a girl named Cindy, and she laughed at my jokes, and we had good conversation, and when we were done talking, I thought, I'd like to talk to Cindy some more. And so a couple of days later, I was in a building on campus, I was walk, walking to class, and I saw Cindy. And so I just said, hi, Cindy. And she goes, hi. And I thought, got it. That, now I know where to find Cindy when I need to find Cindy. A couple days later, same building, heading to the same class. There she is in the hallway again. Hey, Cindy, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing great. All right, see you later. And that was it. So about three or four times, we had this brief interaction until one day I greeted her. Hey, Cindy. And she goes, stop. I have no clue who you are. You keep saying my name, but I don't think we've ever met. And I said, well, well, yeah, it was, you know, the thing a couple weeks ago, late at night. And, and she goes, I didn't attend that. So uh, what happened was uh, I just called some random girl Cindy, and it just so happened that that was her name. I, I had the right name, but the wrong human. And... Later, when I found the real Cindy, or I guess not the real one, just the other Cindy, when I found her, um, she was taller and their faces did not look alike. The only thing they had in common was brown hair. So uh, uh, darkness has a way of obscuring people's identities. We know this for sure. Uh, We're studying in Matthew 26, we're studying the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And today, our journey through this beautiful passage brings us into a dark place, the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, The Garden of Gethsemane is a place of a lot of different darkness. It's physically dark. Our story takes place at night. It's, It's in an orchard of olive trees. There's no light there. Our story is emotionally dark. You'll see right off the bat that Jesus is overwhelmed with emotion as he considers the path ahead of him. It's a place of spiritual darkness. The disciples highlight this for us as once again they put on full display their entire ignorance of who Jesus is and what he's doing. This garden is a place of great, great darkness, but in the midst of this darkness there's a gospel light that shines boldly. Oftentimes, you may have heard, I've certainly heard, that the Garden of Gethsemane is called the Garden of Agony. That's accurate. I think when we finish today, we can give it a new name. We can call it the Garden of Glory because this garden points us to the beautiful cross of Jesus Christ. And so my goal today for you in this study is is this. My, My desire is that at the end of our time in God's Word, you would embrace Jesus Christ you would embrace his cross and all of its benefits. Dark Gethsemane shines light on the cross for us today. And what we learn there points us into the arms of a loving Savior. And so what I want to show you in our passage are three different ways that Christ's garden experience illuminates the cross. Now, here's our scene. If you haven't been with us the last couple of Sundays, I'll take you back to verse 1. Uh, several things have happened already in Matthew 26. Uh, one... Jesus' disciple, Judas Iscariot, has 
concocted a plan with religious leaders to hand Jesus over to them. These religious leaders want Jesus arrested and dead. And Judas wants to make a profit off of it while he can. And so he's concocted this plan with them, a way in which he will hand Jesus over to them quietly, away from the crowds, so that there's not a riot, there's not a fight. They can just dispatch of Jesus and get on with their business. Jesus and the disciples are in the capital city of Jerusalem for holiday season. It's the Passover. And on this night, they've already gathered together and they've celebrated the Passover meal. But in the midst of that symbolic meal, Jesus creates this new symbolic meal, a memorial meal by which the disciples are to remember his death and the benefits of his death. If you were with us last week, you took part in that memorial meal with all of us. And so from that dinner, Jesus and the disciples walk out into the night, and they're going to go outside the city walls to this hillside olive tree orchard where Jesus is going to pray. It's the Garden of Gethsemane. And on the way to that hillside orchard, Jesus tells his disciples, guys, here's what's going to happen tonight. Every one of you will desert me. And Peter, the vocal leader, said, not me. Even if I have to die, I'm going to stay by your side and then all the other disciples chimed in as well. Yes, Jesus, we will lay down our lives for you. From there, they enter the garden, and that's where our story picks up. So look with me at Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet Not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed. My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, May your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. What I want to show you in this passage this morning are three ways the garden illuminates the cross. We're going to have a better understanding of the cross of Christ and its meaning for us when we get to the end of this today. So if you're taking notes, the first way the garden illuminates the cross, the first thing it teaches us about the cross is this. The cross is the place of God's horrifying judgment. I know that's a little wordy. I couldn't boil it down anymore. For your note-taking, it's this. The cross is the place of God's horrifying judgment. Verses 36 through 39 highlight this for us. 
What is it in our passage that would help us see the cross as something horrifying? Well, there's a couple of things in our story that would highlight the horror of the cross for us. One would be Jesus' behavior in the garden or his emotional state in the garden of Gethsemane. And second is an understanding of the suffering that Jesus is going to endure at the cross. And so let's look first at Jesus' emotional state in the garden of Gethsemane. This location, this story is a place where the humanity of Jesus is on full display. When we think about Jesus, we think of him as the God-man. He is fully God, fully man, not 50-50, The math doesn't make sense to you and I, but it's perfect for who Jesus is. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus' humanity is on full display. Look at how Matthew describes Jesus' emotions and actions. Now, there's several places. Verse 37 Jesus is described as being sorrowful and troubled. In verse 38, Jesus says to Peter, James, and John, he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Also in verse 38, he tells those three, he says, stay, as in to mean just in this location, stay here and keep watch with me. So here's Jesus telling his inner circle of guys, I I need you with me tonight. Now, I'm going to go over here and pray by myself, but I need to know you're with me. Relationally, I need this support from you tonight. Stay here, watch, and pray. Verse 39 tells us the posture Jesus took when he went to pray. It says he fell with his face to the ground. Jesus doesn't always pray that way. But on this night, he does. He lays himself before God the Father in spiritual agony. Verse 39, Jesus begins to pray, and he says, My Father. It ought to remind us a little bit of what we know as the Lord's Prayer. Remember when he taught the disciples to pray. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father. This is just Jesus on his own. My Father. And he calls God his Father. It's it's a term of intimacy and endearment. There's closeness there. Jesus is speaking intimately to his heavenly Father. And then also in verse 39, as he continues to pray, he says, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. There's no mistaking Jesus' emotional state in this setting. He, he's troubled. His emotions are heavy. He's seeking support from his disciples. He's coming to speak to his Father in an intimate, close way. Now here's what's weird about this deal. Does Jesus know how all of these events are going to play out? Yes, he does. He's already predicted his death multiple times. Even at the beginning of chapter 26, Jesus says, I'm going to be killed. He knows he's going to die. And he knows he will rise from the dead. Even on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, he tells the disciples, you're going to flee, but don't worry. I'll rise from the dead and you'll meet up with me in Galilee to a place where I'll tell you. So Jesus knows how these events are going to unfold. But that doesn't change the fact that this moment is intensely difficult, emotionally troubling for him. And why is it so troubling for Jesus? I think he gives us a clue in his prayer. Look again at what he says in verse 39. He says, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. What's the cup? Jesus is speaking of here. Well, the word cup is a metaphor with Old Testament roots. In the Old Testament, this poetic language of a cup can be used to describe God's blessings. You could take the cup of blessing, drink from the cup of blessing, 
But more often than not, it means God's judgment. You, if you drink from the cup of God's judgment, his wrath for your sin is falling on you. So, for example, Jeremiah chapter 25, this is one of several places where this language is used. And, and in Jeremiah 25, it, it describes in graphic detail God's judgment on his people for their sin and on their tormentors, the other nations, for their rejection of Yahweh. And so God tells the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 25, verse 15, he says, Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. So Jeremiah 25 is poetic language describing God's wrath on the sin of his people Israel and and their oppressors. The, The cup metaphor means this. It means that God is unleashing horrifying judgment on the one who drinks from the cup. So what does Jesus mean when he prays, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me? We've got to be very specific here. I do not think Jesus is wrestling with the decision whether or not to go to the cross. That decision has long ago been made. He knows he's going to the cross. He has stated it. This is not a time where he's wavering in his decision whether or not to go to the cross. Nor do I think in this moment Jesus is afraid of dying or the type of death he will endure. Rather, I think Jesus here is reacting properly to the burden of the sin he will bear and the terror of the wrath that will be unleashed on him. If he's drinking the cup, that means he is receiving all of God's wrath for all of our sin. A favorite preacher and writer of mine, probably of yours, a man named John Stott, He described Jesus' feelings in the garden this way. From this contact with human sin, Jesus' sinless soul recoiled. And from the experience of alienation from his father, which the judgment on sin would involve, he hung back in horror. So when Jesus tells Peter, James, and John that he is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, it's because he is about to endure the unbridled wrath of God on sin. Now, oftentimes when you and I talk about God forgiving sin, we, we'll use this language. We'll talk about our sin being wiped away, forgotten. But this is not how sin is forgiven. In God's economy, his justice requires the punishment of sin. So that means for anyone who believes The punishment that your sin requires is taken from you and it is laid on Jesus. Sin is not merely wiped away like it's some stain in your life. Sin is punished. Sin is judged. Sin is paid for. When God forgives us, our sin doesn't just vaporize into the atmosphere. It goes to this cross here. And on the one who hung on that cross... Jesus dies your death so that you can live his life. It's utterly astounding that the cup of wrath that we deserve is drunk in full by God the Son. Now, there are times in the life of every Christian when we go through trials. That's no-brainer stuff. You probably come in here today going through some junk. And oftentimes what will happen is when we try to make sense of it, to try to understand the purpose behind it, 
or the reason for that trial, sometimes we'll say this, we'll assume maybe God is punishing me. I I haven't been good enough. I haven't been to church enough. I I haven't been serious enough about my holiness. Maybe God is punishing me for these things that I've done wrong. But if Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath on your behalf, there is no more punishment for you to endure or to bear or to walk through. Will God discipline those whom he loves? Absolutely, he will. But will he punish his children? No, because he has laid that punishment on the Son. Jesus has taken all of it. So Christians approach sorrow and suffering with a different point of view. The hard day is not here because God is punishing us, but rather the the hard day is where our good God meets us and refines us and delivers us and brings us all the way through. In the darkness of Gethsemane, Jesus recoils at the thought of what it will mean for him to drink the cup of God's wrath on our behalf. We see there in the darkness of Gethsemane the absolute horror of God's judgment on sin. That's not all we see, though, in the darkness of Gethsemane. There's a second way the garden illuminates the cross for us. In the garden, we learn that the cross is for failed people. If you're taking notes, the cross is for failed people. Verses 40 through 41 show us this. When Jesus enters the garden, comes in with the 11, because remember at this point, Judas Iscariot is off getting the religious leaders to come arrest Jesus. So he walks into the garden with the 11, and he leaves eight in one place, and he takes three with him a little farther in. And when he gets in with those guys, verse 38, he tells them, he says, look, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And then Jesus goes a little farther in to pray on his own. And after he prays a while, he comes back, and and what does he find? He finds these three sleeping. Look at what Jesus says in verse 40. He says, could you men not watch with me for one hour? That's what he asks to Peter. It's significant that he asks Peter this because remember what Peter had just said? Literally just not maybe an hour or two before. Jesus said, you're all going to desert me tonight. Peter beats his chest, not me. Even if I have to die, I will stay with you. But he can't even stay awake with Jesus. It's, it's a laughable scene at Peter's expense and at the expense of the other disciples as well. Verse 41, Jesus says, Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. So three total times, Jesus finds the disciples sleeping. And only on this first time does he really properly scold them. In, in verse 41, that scolding comes in the form of this command. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. So what's Jesus miffed about? It's not just that the disciples fell asleep. Now, your translation may even, instead of watch and pray, it may say, stay awake and pray. But I don't think Jesus is just upset because these guys were sleepy on this night. I think there's more to it. You see, that word watch, the Greek word translated watch in the NIV here, is used by Matthew in just a few places in his gospel. And when he uses that specific word, it does not mean stay awake. There's a different word he uses for stay awake. This word, when Matthew uses it, he's describing spiritual preparedness or alertness. 
So, for example, in chapter 24 of Matthew's Gospel, when he uses this word, Jesus uses the word to describe his disciples' state of mind as they wait on his return. Be alert. Be watchful. Watch for me. So does Jesus expect his disciples here to stay awake uh, so they can be spiritually prepared and that way they'll not flee when Judas and the gang show up? Is that what Jesus is driving at here? Be watchful and pray. Don't fall into temptation, the temptation to flee. Again, I don't think that's what's happening here. Jesus has already told these guys, every one of you will desert me tonight. That is going to happen. Jesus isn't trying to counteract the, the prophecy that the word of God has already given and Jesus has spoken. But I think Jesus' command to watch and pray is an expectation that the disciples will fall in line with what Jesus himself is doing in the garden. Jesus himself is preparing through prayer. And he finds resolve in the Father's will to take on sin's suffering. I believe Jesus is asking the disciples to do much the same on his behalf. Watch and pray doesn't just mean stay awake and be on the lookout. Watch is, you need to be, we need to be spiritually prepared in this moment. I need you to pray for me. That I will take the Father's will. I will walk in his way. The alternative is this. The temptation is not a temptation to sleep. It's a temptation to get in the way of the cross. If these guys are not spiritually prepared, if they are not in line with what Jesus is doing, his path to the cross, his path to drink fully the cup of God's wrath for sin, if they're not on board with that agenda, they may step in the way of the cross. They, in fact, may even pull out a sword and start hacking away for their own freedom in a moment of great stress. The temptation, it's not a temptation to sleep, it's a temptation to abandon the cross and all of its benefits for those who believe. And the disciples are going to face that temptation supremely. This is why Jesus tells them, look, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That They may want Jesus to be the Messiah, to be the Lord, but when they're faced with the moment itself, they cannot handle it, and they fail. They utterly fail. Man, these disciples are so dumb. What stupid disciples I can't believe that once again they fail in this way. Think of all they've seen and all they've heard. Think of all the things Jesus has taught them and told them. And still in this moment, they can't even get this right. They can't even stay awake. Here's what you and I know. If we were in the garden that night, we would have been wide awake. We would have been praying. We would not have let Jesus down because these guys are big dummies. Here's the problem. You and I are not merely in league with these disciples. We are worse than these disciples. Because you and I have all of this. And still we struggle to embrace the cross of Jesus Christ and the Messiah who died there for us. The disciples have an excuse. You and I, we're without excuse here. Now, here's the problem. You and I, we think we're okay. We think we're not such failures. If you have to evaluate your life today, and why should God be good to you? Your evaluation would be, he ought to be good to me because I'm not as bad as, and then insert the blank. Here's the problem. When it comes to comparing ourselves to someone else, we always pick someone worse. Well, at least I'm not a murderer. Well, here's the thing. 
you don't get credit with God just for allowing people to live. I'm not a murderer. I'm not a terrorist. I'm not a bad person. Or you might say, I have good intentions. I have success. I have means. And if these are the things you're banking on to make your soul right before God, you are in the dark. We are all failures when it comes to maintaining the standard of God's holiness. The hardest thing for a New Englander to say is this, I am a desperate sinner, and I cannot save myself. I need Jesus on that cross. We are just like these disciples, yawning at the atonement. We need a nap more than we need a Savior. Dark Gethsemane shines a bright light on our complete and total failure. So it's it's a bleak picture so far. We're seeing the intense horror of God's wrath on sin. And and what's more, we're we're confronted with our complete and total, total failure before God. The worrisome conclusion is that we sinful people then deserve to drink the cup of God's wrath ourselves. That's our deserved punishment for sure. But there's one more brilliant light that shines in dark Gethsemane. Third thing the garden teaches us about the cross is that the cross is Christ's resolve. The cross is Christ's resolve, verses 42 through 46. In Jesus' first prayer in the garden, he he says this, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So there's a a little bit of uncertainty here as Jesus considers absorbing God's wrath on sin for the saved. If if there's any other way, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. His second prayer is similar in verse 42, but it's it's a bit different. My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Then we're told the third time he prays, he prays the exact same thing. The difference between prayer one and prayers two and three is Jesus seems to be resolved at the Father's will. And in that will, he finds strength and he finds focus. The Jesus who enters the garden is emotionally very different from the Jesus who exits the garden. Jesus comes into the garden overwhelmed with sorrow even to the point of death. He leaves the garden resolved in the will of the Father. In verse 46, what does he say to his disciples? Rise, let's go. That's not let's escape, it's let's go. My betrayer is at hand. I'm going to fulfill the will of the Father. Jesus stands in such stark contrast to the disciples. It's the bragging disciples who then fall asleep and later flee into the night. But it is a submitted Jesus who does not resist arrest. He does not give a defense during his phony trials. He does not call legions of angels to come and take him down from the cross. But he does drink fully the cup of God's wrath on sin. 
So even though this is a bit of a dark scene, here's the pivot to joy and to light. The pivot is this. Although God's wrath is horrible and we sinners deserve it, Jesus will take it and he is resolved to do so. God loves you. And here is the proof. That he sent God the Son to die on the cross in your place for your sin, to take the punishment that your sin requires. No one can stand here this morning and say, God doesn't love me. He has proven it by the gift of his Son. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5, Paul says that because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in sin. This is what God has done for all of us. So the story starts with a bleak tone. God's wrath is horrible. We're deserving of that cup. But now we get to this place where Jesus is going to take it. He will walk in the Father's will. And he will give to those who believe every blessing in him. Do you remember where Jesus and the disciples were just right before this Garden of Gethsemane experience? They were in the upper room, and they were taking part in the Passover meal, and then Jesus takes bread, and he breaks it, and he says, this is my body. Then he takes wine, and he pours it, and he says, this is my blood. Drink from this. And so in the upper room, the disciples drink from a cup. They drink from the cup of blessing, all the benefits of Christ's death, symbolized in the drinking of this cup. They take the cup of blessing, and then Jesus will later drink from a cup as well, but a different cup. He will drink from the cup of God's wrath. He has resolved himself to do so. Not my will, your will be done. If there's no other way, I'm going to do it. I'm going to walk in the way of the Father's will. What a beautiful statement about the power and majesty and glory and worthiness of Jesus Christ and a call to every single one of us to say yes to him and celebrate him and embrace the cross and all of its benefits. Gethsemane has taught us a lot this morning. It's taught us about the horror of God's wrath on sin. It's taught us about the complete and total failure, not just of the disciples, but of you and I in this room. We're in league with those guys. But then in the end, we see Jesus submitted to the Father's will to do the work that your salvation requires. In dark Gethsemane, we see the bright glory of the gospel. You're probably familiar with the name Stephen Hawking, one of the most brilliant minds on the planet, scientist. And uh, he talks a lot about black holes and, and a lot of things that I just I can't understand five words that this guy puts out. And in recent years, Stephen Hawking has clarified his position as an atheist, an avowed atheist. And in an interview a few years ago, Hawking talked about the improbability of there being a God. And so here's what he said in his interview. He said, you know, we we could define God as a concept of divinity, uh, as the embodiment of laws of nature. So he's saying you just take the laws of nature and you just call them in a group, this is God. So we could do that. However, this is not what most people would think of that God. They made a human-like being with whom one can have a, a personal relationship. And when you look at the vast size of the universe and how insignificant an accidental human life is in it, well, that seems most impossible. 
Well, Hawking's right about one thing. When we think about the vast size of the universe, a single human life is incredibly insignificant, which makes it all the more amazing that the God who made black holes and quasars knit you together in your mother's womb. And the God who hung the Pleiades has numbered every hair on your head. And the God who knew there were millions of galaxies before our telescopes told us so, well, that God loved the world in this way. He gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not die but will have everlasting life. You are significant to the eternal, infinite, all-loving God. He loves you so much. So this morning, from the garden, Jesus calls us to faith, to trust. He will drink all the way down the cup of God's wrath so that you can drink all the way down the cup of blessing, forgiveness, eternal life, eternal fellowship with the Father, glory with Him. These are the things that Jesus extends to you and I. And He doesn't extend that to clean people. He doesn't make that promise to the good people or the churchy people or the religious people. He just extends that promise to anyone who believes. The call here is not to clean yourself up first and make yourself worthy of Jesus. You're not going to get there. The call here is to acknowledge, I failed, dead in my sin. I deserve the punishment that God has for me. But I will trust in the one who went to the cross in my place. And the one who rose from the dead three days later. And the one who will be my king now and forevermore. So today you're invited out of darkness and into the light to trust in the one who drank from the cup of God's wrath so that you can drink forever from the cup of God's blessing. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for your word and for all the ways that it bothers us. This is a hard passage. It is bleak. And this situation is only going to get bleaker for a time. But Lord, I pray as we wrestle with the bleakness of this passage that we would also be confronted with the seriousness of our sin and its consequences. Lord, would you awaken faith this morning in hearts that need you, people who are precious to you. God, for my brothers and sisters, I ask that we would be humbled in the face of what Christ has done for us and suffered for us. Lord, that we would take serious our sanctification and our further separation from sin. But God, let there be no mistaking this morning that we we walk out of here today not with heads hung low, but Father, with souls lifted as we have trusted in the one who said, not my will, but your will be done. Thank you for so great a salvation as this, one that is not earned but has been won and is given freely to all those who believe. Father, this morning, help us as we drink from the cup of blessing as we trust in the one who gave everything for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.